Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. We're going to be in a few different passages tonight, but let's start in. I'm going to have you turn to um, probably First Chronicles 12. Just uh, First Chronicles would be good. And um, if you want to, you can turn to Acts chapter 13. That's where we'll start off. I want to talk about David as a leader of God's people. And I think what I'll share tonight are leadership principles that we can all use no matter what our um, what our position of influence is, and uh, so uh, there's something in this for all of us. None of us are are kings in the sense that David was the king, right? But you realize that there's some qualities that he has that we as Christians can carry with us in in our areas of influence, and I think that uh, if we do that, it will be God-honoring. Acts chapter 13, verse uh, 20 through 22, Paul is preaching at a place called Pisidian Antioch. Um, it's it's another Antioch besides the one where the uh, the church uh, was thriving. This is a mission outreach, and while he's there, he's in the synagogue and he's preaching and he's talking about the history of the nation of Israel. And he comes to verse twenty in Acts thirteen, and he says, "All this took about four hundred and fifty years." Talking about the the time that they were in in captivity and in, in Egypt, and then he says, "After this." God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, and then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years, and after removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will he will do everything I want him to do. He'll do everything I want him to do. So here we have... Uh, David reigning, and then we we hear in Acts, uh, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter eighteen, verse fourteen, that David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was right and just for all of his people. So David was an exceptional leader. I want to want to hold up some of those qualities uh, tonight. But but after uh, Saul was dead, the nation became divided between those who were uh, remained loyal to Saul. And I think one of the phrases was, "If you're, if you're, unless you're the tribe of Judah, you need to come and follow me." And uh, this was Saul's son, his second son, Ishbosheth, who uh, began to lead um, eleven of the tribes. I don't know where Levi fell in all of this, but let's just say ten of the tribes uh, to follow him. And the one tribe of Judah was remaining loyal to David and acknowledged David as king. And right now, after Saul died, there was an immediate vacuum in leadership. And and David knew that he was called by God, and others knew that he was called by God. And so many thrust him to the front and said, uh, you need to rule over us. But there came a period of seven years. I, I don't know if you knew this, but when when David was anointed king, he was only king over Judah for the first seven years, okay? And then following that time, there was a, a period of, of civil war and, and some certain things happened there that were uh, some major breaches of loyal, loyalty that took place. And uh, you know that uh, at the end of it, Saul's son Ishbosheth, 
who uh, had made a claim for the throne of his father Saul, was killed by two of his own men while he was taking a nap. That's not a very dignified way to die, is it? Uh, And while he was taking a nap, and David became king over all of Israel. And uh, it says in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 38, all these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron, fully determined to make David king over all of Israel. And all of the rest of the Israelites were also in mind to make David their king. And so he becomes king at Hebron, now over all of Israel, and he rules for, uh, from there for 33 years. Anybody remember how old David is when he becomes king for the first time? 30, yep. And then for seven years, he ruled in Hebron, or he ruled in, uh, over Judah. And then anybody know how long he ruled the rest of his time? 33 years, so 40, 40 years total of ruling, uh, so that means David died about age 70, okay? That's when uh, Solomon becomes king in his place. But one of the things that made David different uh, than Saul is that David ordered his life with what mattered to God first. That's how he ordered everything within his life. Uh, there are some glaring failures, which we, we know about and we'll talk about, um, but they were the exception to David's leadership over all of the direction of David's life. David also uh, served God successfully through all the stages of his life. And that's not true of Saul, was it? Saul became king, and he, uh, as a young man, seemed to be doing pretty good. And then something interrupted that, and as he became more and more entrenched in his power, uh, I think his head got bigger and bigger, and he felt that he needed God less and less. And you see that whole religious side of him or the pious side of him or the godly side of him pushed to the margins, and it became about Saul and protecting his kingdom more than anything else. And so this is one of the differences between David and Saul. David served God successfully through all the stages of his life. You probably remember, I think this is Psalm 37, is it, is it not, where it says, I was, I was young and now I'm old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Remember that? Isn't that Psalm 37? Okay. Well, I think I believe David said it. And he's saying, look, through the span of my life, I've been observing all of this. And the point that I want to draw from that is that David was faithful to God through all of his life. As he, he was watching for the things of God through all of his life and through the successive stages of life. And I think that's really important is that we understand that serving God is not a young man's game or an old person's game. This is the, this is the standard call for all of our lives. And, and there's something sufficient in God to meet us in every phase of life with its different and unique challenges. Like young men's challenges are different from old men's challenges, right? And you can see it working out too. <laughs> Man, there are elbows flying up here. Um, but you can see it. I, I forgot now what I was going to say. You can, you can see it um, working out in some of the different ways that people minister. Remember when it says that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh what does he say about young men? They'll see visions, and the old men will dream dreams. And I have a theory. It's because the old men are taking naps. 
And so God gets a hold of men in their dreams. <laughs> that's how I know that that's the case. The old men will dream dreams. And so he knows how to approach us in our different, in our different phases of life. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I wanted to mention here that, that it's important that we understand God, has, God is our portion in every area of our life, our childhood, our adolescence, our young adulthood, being middle-aged, being in our senior years. There's, there is joy in serving God in our phases of life. And uh, I've, not reached the, I've not reached that final phase yet, but uh, I know many who have. And they testify God is sufficient, and they're, they're looking beyond the horizon to the glory that God will bring. Um. David served successfully in all his phase of life. In fact, I, I think it's in uh, Acts chapter 6 and Stephen's message when it says that when David had served his purpose in his generation, he rested with his fathers. So there's, he, he was there for a purpose for a p- particular period of time. And when he had served that purpose, then God took him. And so all of those areas of life were meant for, for God's purpose and he served through those successive stages, not just in the beginning, but in the middle and the end. And, and uh, that, I think, is, uh, is an indication that he was a man who was persevering after God. And so these lessons that we're going to talk about here, or these, um, these principles of leadership, I think, could be applied to any, of, any area of influence that God has given us. The first one is that David's leadership was a leadership that was godly. Just put that up there for now. Godly. It was godly leadership. David was pious. What what do we mean by pious? What does pious mean to you? Oriented towards the holy? Serious about God? What was that, John? Okay, followed God and did what he was supposed to do. Anybody else? All the time? Okay, yep. Pious, uh, it means something like that he took God seriously and that he acted on it in ways that pleased God. So we can, we can act upon taking God seriously in ways that are not pleasing to him. Like David could have, for example, said, God want, is, has anointed me to be king and he wants me to have the throne. And so when he's in the cave, he could have killed Saul. But that wouldn't have been doing it, pursuing God in the right way. Are you with me? Even, even though he knew that the end was the same, the end doesn't justify the means. Okay? There's, there's right means and ways to get to the right ends. And uh, David understood that. And so his piety was his seriousness about God that was lived out in practical ways with, with real zeal. I think with Saul... Um, you get the impression that serving the Lord became inconvenient to him in time, that it was more on the peripheral of his life than in the center. Do you know what I mean by that? That there's sometimes we, we could push God to the margins. And um, this, this word in the New Testament for ungodliness is not, I always just thought that means sinfulness, but it doesn't really mean sinfulness. It's it's an aspect of sinfulness. When you talk about ungodliness, it means uh, to live life with God on the margins and not at the center. So to be ungodly, uh, you can even have people who go to church and, and 
give of their tithes and offerings and serve in a particular ministry. But when it comes to day-to-day living, God's really not this at the center. And he may be on the peripheral, and it may be that we don't think about him all day long. That's ungodliness. And ungodliness, the outworking of that, of course, is other kinds of sin and corruption, uh, if not maybe a, a symptom of pride. But it's a way of living which pushes God out, okay? Even if it's just in our thinking, like you can go through the practical things, but in our thinking, he's never our focus. He's never in our thoughts. He's not important to us that much. It's just something that is an accessory to our lives rather than him being at the center. And I think uh, Saul was ungodly. David was godly. And so this is the difference is that he treated the Lord like he was an inconvenience to him. It was never quite central. And you see this all through Saul's reign. I don't know if you've thought about this, but all through Saul's reign, the Ark of the Covenant sat in somebody's house. Do you know that? All through his reign. Because it was when Eli was still alive that the people of Israel, this is a really interesting story, they're like, you know what's going to bring success? We need a good luck charm. We need to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle like they used to do in the olden days, and then we'll certainly defeat the Philistines. Well, God is not into being a good luck charm to endorse our pursuits. Like, if he's given the command, take the Ark of the Covenant, then surely do it. But don't just get up one day and go, you know what will bring success? We need some tangible, sacramental kind of intersection between heaven and earth to take into battle with us, and then we'll win. And do you remember what happened there? They went into battle with shouts, and they got into battle against the Philistines. And the Philistine commander, I think, is a little bit heroic in this, even though I'm not supposed to root for him. Because Israel's winning the battle a little bit, and he encourages his men. He said, come on, you guys, fight like men. And they do. And they take possession of the Ark of the Covenant. They defeat Israel when um, Eli hears about it. Remember, they write Ichabod, and uh, Eli hears about it, and he falls over and breaks his neck and dies, and his sons are lost in that battle too. And they take the uh, Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon, and that has negative impact on their religion, doesn't it? <laughs> the statue falls over and breaks. They all get boils. They make this sh- makeshift cart and put some boils around it and, like, these gold boil things that are little votives, and then they shove the cart in the general direction of Israel, and uh, that's that. They're done with it, (laughs) right? And so somebody finds the ark and brings it into their home. In fact, I I know you probably know this by now, but um, remember the guy that touched the Ark of the Covenant? It went into his house. It was in his house, and that house got blessed out. They got blessed out of their booties, they did. And David uh, realizes this. He's like, we need to, when he becomes king, he wants to bring this back and restore worship. And what we need to understand is that as long as the Ark of the Covenant is in somebody's house, it's not in the tabernacle. And if it's not in their tabernacle, it means that tabernacle worship has been disrupted. And Saul seems to be okay with that. Do you see why we would think that maybe he's not so godly, he's ungodly? He seems to be okay with that. Like, 
just going to let that happen. Or he has, he's like maybe thinking, I'm a military leader. I have nothing to do with this. Although that didn't bother him when Samuel didn't show up. He jumped right to it and offering sacrifices, didn't he? And so that's all going on. He doesn't try to put the Ark of the Covenant back. The tabernacle is in ruins. Um, in fact, Jeremiah later refers to that period, and he says, remember Shiloh, when they're all saying, hey, God will never bring judgment on Jerusalem. we got the temple here. And Jeremiah says, hey, remember Shiloh, which is the place where the presence of God used to be. Well, go look at that and see what happened. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off here, but Saul doesn't seem to have the same regard for the presence of God or the sacrificial system or the the tabernacle system or any of that. And Samuel, speaking on behalf of God, uh, was, was happening during that time. But it's as if Saul has to put up with him because he needs him. Remember when... Um, when he's been rejected, he begs Samuel to go back with him in order to have some clout and to save face. And he runs roughshod over ceremony when it comes to offering sacrifices, and he acts like obedience to the command of God when he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, that that can just be altered because he thinks another course is better. doesn't matter what God said. Uh, I'm king, and I think this is, is good. So he does what he wants. David is something different, though, isn't he? When you think about what David's like, he seeks the Lord personally. This happens again and again. Uh, He's a worshiper. He establishes the tabernacle in his own city. Remember, he says when he builds his cedar house, he's like, it's not right that I live in a cedar house and the temple or the tabernacle is not the temple yet. Tabernacle lies in ruins. It's just tattered fabric at this point. I should build something. <laughs> I should build something for God. And so he wants to do something like that. And he, he wants the tabernacle and its ministries to be reestablished, so he brings it to his own city, and then, which is the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And then he persists in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle. And I say persist because the first time he did it, it didn't go well. They brought it up on the cart. The Philistines sent it over on <laughs> <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? And so the ox cart stumbles. Uzzah, who's had it in his house, thinks of it not as the revered presence of God, or at least the symbol of that, like he should. He treats it like furniture that's been in his house for 30 years. And he reaches up to steady it, and God uses a powerful demonstration that we don't do such things. And he strikes him dead. And David pushes it over into a house for three months. That house gets blessed out of its booties. And he's like, we got to get this thing back up into Jerusalem. And so he persists in bringing the Ark of the Covenant up. And when he does, he dances before the Lord with all of his might. And they bring it into the city. And it's a cause for great rejoicing. He organizes the worship system with all the responsibilities. You remember, he's appointing guys right and left to be doorkeepers at the house of God to sing certain songs. He's writing songs for uh, tabernacle worship, and he's reinstituting the priesthood, and he's reestablishing the nation as a religious nation. Saul had allowed it to continue in the similar form that the judges had, right? They were a secular nation in a sense because there were a bunch of divided tribes, and God really wasn't 
at the center in people's thinking, and David is reestablishing that. Um, he organizes the worship system with its responsibilities, and he sets aside resources for the building of the temple, though God won't let him do it. Right? So all of this is happening, and it shows us what kind of person David was as a leader. He was the kind of person who was godly. He was, his leadership was godly leadership. It was God at the center and not on the peripheral. And so David was leading the people with whom he had influence towards God. That's what he's doing. He's saying, if I'm going to rule this nation, then whatever leadership or authority God's given me is going to lead this nation back towards God. And he did. He led that nation, the nation, back towards God. And, and you see this is true in all the great leaders. It's characteristics of all the great leaders in, in Israel's history in the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, that begins to shift towards uh, a global mission, although I think it's there in the Old Testament too. But think about the patriarchs. They were pioneering a way to follow, uh, to follow after God. Moses and the prophets were prophesying. Joshua was possessing the land that God had given them. The priests were purifying the people, and the kings were using their influence to protect uh, what God had given them, the purpose for which Israel was to be. And uh, you know that Israel wasn't just established to be this separate nation uh, that God could bless, and I'm just going to have one people and among all the people of the earth, and I'm going to just bless them. That wasn't the purpose of Israel. The purpose of Israel was to be a light to the nations and a conduit for God's blessing. In fact, I think the purpose of the Old Testament people of God was to establish a culture in which the Messiah could come. I think that's the, that's the overarching purpose of Israel. Is And when God spoke to Abraham, he said, this is going to be the number of your descendants. And I believe that he wasn't just talking about physical descendants, but spiritual descendants. You look at the stars of the sky, that will be your descendants. Not just fit, And we get this from Galatians and Romans, that we are, we are descendants of Abraham through faith. Okay? Um, the sand of the seashore, so that's your descendants, will be that many. Well, how's that going to be? It's not just through natural descendants. Romans chapter uh, 9 through 11 talks about this. It's not just natural descendants. It's, it's spiritual descendants that he's talking about there. And so um, he promises Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. This is before there's an Isaac and a Jacob, before there's the 12 tribes, before uh, David, before any of that, before Moses, any of that, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. This is a promise. This is a missions promise that people will come into the favor of God through, through your seed. And Galatians makes this clear. Paul makes this clear as he works through this. He says, seeds are not of many, but of one. In other words, it's not seeds plural, it's seed singular. That All of this was established that a seed may come. You'll find in the Old Testament, I'm spending a little time here because I think that's really important, that sometimes Israel collectively is called God's son with a small s. Okay? Out of... Out of Egypt, I have called my son, small s. Well, in the New Testament, we see something similar to that, but out of Egypt, you call my, I will call my son, capital S. So what Israel represented in the Old Testament, Jesus fully represents. He stands in the place of all of Israel. 
And so that if you're engrafted into Christ, you're engrafted into Israel. Does that make sense? We're, we're brought in. Okay, we're brought in. And so all of this was intended to, as part of what David is called to do, is, is to uh, protect this legacy that God is establishing. And so all of David's conquering foreign armies, ruling with justice and righteousness, they were to preserve a certain quality of people through which the Messiah would come. And so David used all of his God-given power and influence so that the promise could be established. Um, and, by the way, as we're talking about godliness here, um, a thing to think about is that David's wholehearted devotion was the standard by which all the other kings were judged. I don't know if you thought about this, especially kings of Judah were judged. Uh, always it would say something like this after it mentions this, uh, this king passed away and this king rose up in their place, and it would say something like this, that they did or they did not follow the Lord. They did, not, they did or they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as their father David had done. So this is the standard of success. This is the test of success, not, not how prosperous they were or how long they reigned. Um, there's an exception to this rule with Amaziah. Amaziah, it says, I think it's in First Chronicles 14, it says of him that he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. Do you get that? In other words, it's bringing it down a level and saying, he did pretty good, but he didn't meet the standard of success. So check this out. Then his son, anybody know who Amaziah's son was? I'll give you a hint. He got leprosy. Okay? Uh, he got leprosy for going into the temple and offering sacrifices. No? He ruled for 52 years longer than any other king. Isaiah referred to him in Isaiah 6. Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And here's what it says about Uzziah. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father Amaziah had done. <laughs> do you see what it did there? It equated him with the lesser standard. So in all the other, the standard of success is with Hezekiah, with Josiah, uh, with uh, the other great kings, it would say that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as their father David had done, or they did not do that. Solomon, he did not follow the Lord with all of his heart as his father David had done. And so this was the standard of success. Listen, no other king was more prosperous and reigned longer than Uzziah. But he wasn't David. He wasn't like David in his wholehearted devotion. There was a lesser quality to him. And I think there's a lesson in that that success is not measure, measured by um, these worldly gauges of success, like how long you've reigned or how wealthy you've made the nation. Uh, in fact, the the most prosperous king of the north, anybody want to take a guess at who that was? Ahab. He was really prosperous. He was uh, moving and, and shaking and making deals left and right, and money was pouring in. But they had problems big time. There was no rain. And so you can see that those are not the standards of success. The 
quality of leadership by biblical standards is tested by the same standard. Did we follow the Lord with all of our hearts? Did we do what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Not even did we think we did all right. Remember Paul says in one place, well, I don't know. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't matter. God is my judge. The question is, have we done what's right in the eyes of the Lord? It's more important than influence or prosperity or longevity or any of that is, have we done what God has asked us to do? Godliness. Okay. Godly leadership. The second one is that his leadership was kind. I'm going to put this up here. Anybody want to guess what the biblical word underlying this is? What kind of? He was kind. David became king uh, because God placed him there, you know. Not because he wanted to be there, although uh, if he was anointed, I'm sure he did want to be there. Um, He wasn't there because he had formed some bloody coup like uh, many regimes. I don't know if you've read the... (laughs) If you've read the... The stories of the kings of the north, but it's like one guy becomes king in the north and then somebody kills him, and that dynasty's dead. Not that there was ever a dynasty in the north, really. And then somebody else becomes king, and then they get assassinated, and it goes on and on. And you can't help but feel like like hope is being sucked out of you as you read those stories. Like This is supposed to be the people of God who are living under the blessing of God and in the promised land. What's wrong with them? Well... One bloody transfer of power uh, to the to the next, and assassination attempts in the north. It was more rare in the south. Uh, David didn't do any of that. David didn't get his kingdom that way. He trusted God, who gave him his power, and he refused to take it any other way. And after God removed Saul, uh, Ishbosheth fought against David, but David didn't kill Ishbosheth either. It was his own men, right? And so you can truly say that David's claim to the throne came from God, not from man and not from himself. God placed him there. And I think that's significant is that it shows, in one sense, his kindness, uh, his kind leadership ability. You know, the ancient standard was to establish your throne by eliminating every other claim to the throne. I, that's pretty typical in the, well, in the ancient Near East and and even in in Europe, is if you want to make sure that you solidify your dynasty, you kill all other claims. And so David could have set out to do that, but he didn't. And so once Saul and Jonathan were dead, uh, you remember that Jonathan had a son, and, and what was his name? Mephibosheth, right? I, I might say it wrong, but uh, Mephibosheth. And uh, the nurse picked him up. Anybody remember how old he was when this happened? Saul and Jonathan are dead uh, from a battle with the Philistines. And the nurse picks up Mephibosheth and starts to run with him, and he's five. And she stumbles and falls, and he breaks his his ankles, and for the rest of his life, 
he, he can't walk for the rest of his life. And so he goes into hiding in Lodabar. He flees for safety, and he lives the rest of his life hiding from David in Lodabar. Is, isn't that interesting? The irony is that Mephibosheth didn't need to run or be carried away or to hide or to live in squalor. None of those things. It kind of is a, a picture of how sometimes we deal with God is that we, we sometimes, instead of running to him, we run from him. And instead of going to him, we hide out. Instead of living with the full potential of what he's given us, we live with less. And this is Mephibosheth. And, and David, uh, I don't know if, you've know if you know this, but David had made a promise with Jonathan that there would be friendship and a covenant between him and Jonathan beyond them. Like if either one of them died, that covenant would go to the family. So, in other words, he's going to watch out for him. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 through 17, if you'd like to follow along, I'm, I'm going to read it quick, so you'll have to turn quick. Uh, 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 17, if you want to be there. Um, Jonathan says to David, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. Listen, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, Hesed. Okay. And he says, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Jonathan's saying this, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So in other words, when the Lord deals with all of your enemies, may you continue to show kindness to my family. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. House means more than just David himself. It's a covenant between families, you see. May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And you can look at verse 42 there, which is a, a recap of all of that. And so this covenant has been made, and, and he calls upon David's kindness to be like the kindness of the Lord. So uh, the, the condition was, even after God has given you rest from your enemies, he's conquered your enemies. Well, it says, after David had, let's, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll just read some of this here. 1 Samuel 9. Second Samuel nine, sorry. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? It's gonna tell us that uh, prior to this that David has conquered his enemies in chapter seven. It says God had given him rest from his enemies on every side. Okay, so he's got the first thing that was kind of in this thing is when when God gives you your enemies and you conquer them, show kindness to my family. So this is being played out here in, in chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can, what? What's it say there? Show kindness to Hesed for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. 
They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both of his feet. Where is he? The king asked, and Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down and paid him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. You see how many times kindness is showing up here? For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore you to the land that belongs to your family, your, your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should take notice of a dead dog like me? So I just like you to notice here that David set out to remember Jonathan and to show kindness. The Hesed. This is that that word. This is a covenant type of loyalty from a greater in status to a lesser in status. And it comes with practical kindness too. It's not just a feeling. Like when we talk about love sometimes in in our culture, we mean a feeling, a warm feeling on the inside, right? But that's not this. This is something different. This is a covenant type of loyalty, and it's usually expressed from a greater to a lesser in status. This is not David looking down upon Mephibosheth. This is describing a particular kind of relational transaction that it's from a lesser to a greater. You recognize that. When God shows us kindness, it's from a greater to a lesser. Did I say lesser to a greater? Flip that. It's from a greater to a lesser. And uh, he's shown kindness to us. It's more than just a feeling. It's practical. Notice that uh, this is a lot like something we've experienced. He sought Mephibosheth out. He sought him. Okay, And then he brought him. He brought him to... Uh, to where he was, and then he enriched him, and then he included him as part of the family. Do you see that? It's a great picture here of God's kindness for us. Uh, And Mephibosheth, of course, is thinking, what's going to happen to me when I go into David's house? And what he doesn't realize is this is not a regular kind of king. This is a kind king. It's a kind type of leadership. And if you have any area of leadership, uh, a question we should ask tonight is, have we led with kindness? I know that we might be tempted to look for anything that resembles unkindness and feel disqualified. And and I'm not talking about that because you know that David, he had to pass judgment. The guy that claimed to have killed Saul, um, he had him, he had him executed. The two guys that uh, took out Mephibosheth, not Mephibosheth, sorry, Ishbosheth, while he was taking a nap. They brought his head to David, and David said, yeah, the guy that killed Saul thought he was doing me a favor too, and it cost them, cost him his life. How much more will it cost you yours? And he had those two guys put to death. And so when I say that David's kind, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have to at times do... Um, Exercise justice, okay? And if you're a parent, you know this. You can be kind to your kids, but 
there's a certain kind of kindness that turns into unkindness. You know what I mean? If you don't discipline. I'm not speaking as a parent, but as a child. My parents loved me. I, I didn't know it at the time. I thought they hated me. Why do you hate me? Why are you spanking me? Don't, do you not love me anymore? No, that was their practical expression of kindness. Whenever they spanked or grounded or took away some kind of privilege, whatever the consequence was, it was a kindness that they were showing me, though I didn't understand it, my simplistic way of thinking. And so even as David um, has to do things that appear at times unkind, there's a kindness about him. And it's a, a love, a covenant kind of love that he has for others. David had to wield the sword, but he was a kind, he was a kind king. And I'd like you to notice next, we're moving right along here, that his leadership was humble. He had a humble kind of leadership. It's a leadership that is humble. David was humble before God. He didn't try to rush ahead of God's plan, and he didn't try to take God's plan in his own hands um, most of the time. You know, uh, Saul... He uh, rushed things, and he thought it nothing to go ahead and jump ahead and offer the sacrifice when Samuel was coming. And he didn't seem to have a problem with changing the directions that God had given him if he thought it was a little bit better. If you think that you know better than God, what would we call that sin? Rebellion? Yeah. Anything else? Pride. Yeah, it's pride. I know better than God. Well, who are we to know better than God? That's right, pride. It's to know better than God. And David doesn't do that. Like, he could have thought, you know what, makes perfect sense. Saul's here in the cave. He's vulnerable. Nobody wants him around. These guys definitely don't want him around. They're giving him encouragement to take him out. Seems to line up with God's plan. If we're in put point A and point B, and this is right there in between there, it seems like we should do this. But he didn't try to think or reason around God's revelation. He submitted to it and refused to take his life, and not on that occasion only, but the next one as well. So he was humble enough to to do things God's way and allow God to bring about. You know, he was humble enough to know that his position was not about him, and so he didn't force his way to the throne by insisting that he had to be the man. And even when his son Absalom rose up against him, do you remember how he, how he left Jerusalem? They told him, it's time for you to go. If you don't, you'll be overtaken. And uh, David left, and somebody stood across the little brook there and threw stones at him. Do you remember that? Doeg? No, not Doeg. I think it was uh, Shammai, wasn't it? Uh, he took, he, they threw stones at, at David, and one of David's guys said, hey, let me go cut his head off. And David said, no, maybe the Lord has instructed him to do that. And I think he left, if I remember right, barefooted. I didn't look into this passage, but he's walking out in humility, realizing he's going through a second time what he'd already been through once, uh, the life of a refugee. And so he's fleeing and, and entrusting to the Lord, maybe this is the end of the road for me. And that's fine. This is not my position. This is God's position for him to do with what he will. And so that's a a very humble place for him to be. 
He didn't force his way. He didn't, he didn't fight like Saul did to keep the throne. He was willing to go. And he didn't take out personal retaliation upon people, upon his enemies. We don't see him retaliating. We see him acting out in justice towards other things, but not retaliating. In fact, uh, even with Joab and his brother, remember the sons of Zeruiah, how they were such a thorn in his side at times? He didn't even take them to task. It was Solomon who did, which that's an interesting story too, but we don't have time for it. Um, and then you see David as self-deprecating. This may be a little bit of a, a Near Eastern um, approach, but um, we see that in David, even when he's running from Saul, when Saul he catches up to Saul there in the cave, and he calls to him after Saul has left, in, in 1 Samuel 24, verse 14, he says, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Listen, because we've already heard this tonight. Who are, who are you pursuing? A dead dog? Do you hear that? This is uh, the same thing that Mephibosheth said, a dead dog. Like, What's with that? And I, I hope you'll keep in mind, too, that uh, when the Jews referred to Gentiles, they called them dogs. Okay, this is not like a complimentary term in biblical thinking. He even says a flea. Um, in the cultural backgrounds Bible, it says, the dog was not considered man's best friend in the ancient Near East, but was regarded with disdain, or at least as entirely insignificant. Dog was a favorite term both in insults and expressions of self-abasement. To be a dead dog was worse still. So David's self-deprecation before Saul was meant to assure Saul that his pursuit of him was neither necessary nor worthy. Okay, So you see then that uh, um, this whole thing about dog, uh, he's, he's deprecating himself before Saul and saying, I'm really nothing uh, in, in your eyes. I'm really nothing, and so I don't know what it is that you're pursuing. I would do nothing. And that's not the extent of his humility because I think that's, that's something of him just taking that position and exaggerating it so that it could be known. I'm not a threat to you. But he also feels unworthy of the honor that the Lord gives. In Second Samuel 7, when God says, I'm going to make a house out of you, we'll talk about this another time because it's really, there's a lot there. But Second Samuel 7, verse 18, after Nathan comes back, David wants to build the, temp, the temple. God says, no. I'm not going to allow you to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house out of you. And then David realizes what he's getting to some extent, and he says, uh, he says this in verse 18. Then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought, that you have brought me this far? It's a, a humility, a self-deprecation. And I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with that. Like we don't think people should do that. And and maybe maybe not. Maybe this is a uh, a Middle Eastern thing or an Eastern thing. I don't know. But this is what David does. I'm not worthy of this. He's recognizing his own unworthiness. But humility goes further than that. Like you can you can say all these things and not really mean it. False humility, right? You don't. You want people to pay you a compliment, so you say a a negative thing about yourself so that some, you can fish for a compliment and try to try to get that. Or we may just not think highly of ourselves, and, and that's a problem in a self-esteem culture. Uh, but it's really not about that either. Um, 
it's not just self-deprecating. I think true humility ultimately is self-forgetting. Because, you know, if you're thinking about yourself all the time and how lowly you are, you're still thinking about yourself. Okay? So the, the best, I think the, the greatest humility is self-forgetfulness, where you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the Lord. You're thinking about others. It's beyond, like, I'm so lowly. I'm so meek. I'm so mild. I'm so not good at whatever. It's way beyond that. This is, you know what? I don't even matter. How are you? What does God want? Those kinds of things become the type of humility that David exemplifies best. You see, he allowed himself, and this is the, this is the other thing, is that there's self-deprecation, but then there's also self-forgetfulness. And then the third area is that he allowed himself to be moved by reasonable argument from others, even people of lesser position and power. And that's a level of humility. If you've ever been uh, in a place where you're in leadership over someone, if that someone you're over makes a suggestion that's really good, it can feel threatening. Like, is my leadership not good enough? Well, we don't have to take it that way. David seemed to not take it that way. He uh, was willing to be allowed by to be moved by reasonable argument. When Absalom was killed, um, David wept over him. Do you remember this? He wept over him, and he was crying these tears. And Joab came in and said, why are you weeping? You need to go out and thank your men for fighting for you. And you know what the Bible says? David got up, wiped off his face, and he went out and said thank you to his men for fighting for him. He could have said to Joab, dude, I am grieving my son's death. Allow me to have some time, please. And who are you? Are you the king? He didn't say that. He got up and he went out. And there's humility in that, don't you think? To be able to hear what is true over what I think or my own importance. I think that's really, really valuable quality of, of humble leadership is to be able to do that. To be able to hear sound and reasonable truth. Um, and so Joab persuaded him to go out and face that. And he listened to Abigail too, remember? Nabal wouldn't give them any resources. And David's like, well, I'm going to get rid of this rascally fellow. And he decides to go to war, and Abigail comes out and talks him out of it. Do you remember that? She appeals to him with reason. And David calms down and says, you might have spared me from bringing blood guilt upon myself. He listened to her. He listened. And I think that's really good. He could have said, I'm going to be king someday. Or worse, I'm a man and you're a woman. What do you have to tell me? Right? He could have said that. He didn't. He listened to her. And it spared him blood guilt. And if you know the story, he gained a wife out of it too. Right? Um, when he didn't listen, oh, uh, and I should say too, that he also listened to Nathan uh, when he was confronted with his sin. Nathan used a little trickery to get the story in, didn't he? But he listened to him and repented. And when he didn't listen, which he did on at least one occasion and maybe another, he got into trouble. Do you remember what the occasion was that he didn't listen? Count the fighting men. He said, I want to count the fighting men, which we'll talk about another time. But the gist of it is this, that he didn't really need to. And he was doing it for vanity. Joab said to him, 
Why? You don't need to do that. Don't do that. And David refused to listen to him, and he brought guilt upon himself. He numbered the fighting men. He had them counted. Um, and this, this is the same David who said, some trust in horses and some in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. But let's also find out how many men we've got, right? It wasn't wrong that he counted the fighting men. It was wrong under those circumstances. He did count them in other times, and it was necessary. And Israel counted them at other times. But there was a reason why God didn't want him to do that. And Joab, who's not always a great virtuous man, but sometimes gives really good advice, he refused to listen to that, and it got them into trouble. And we'll talk more about that another time. So the question is, whatever area of influence we have, uh, whatever leadership we have, is it humble? Because David's was humble. And then finally, and uh, we've got to go quick on this one, is empowered. His leadership's empowered. Okay, first, uh, let's go to First Chronicles 18 real quick. And we'll try to go through this uh, chapter and just hit on some highlights here. First Chronicles 18, in the course of time, verse 1 says, David defeated the Philistines and, and subdued them, and he took Gath and surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. And David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated these different kings and uh, chariots, which are like the tanks of that day, and the Arameans. And it says in verse 6 that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields carried by the officers, and he brought them to Jerusalem. And uh, David took great quantity of bronze, which Solomon used to make the bronze sea, which is that big laver thing out in the front courtyard of the temple. And um, the pillars and various bronze articles. And then a certain king came and paid tribute to him, and he took those articles and dedicated them to the Lord and put them in the temple. And then it says in verse 13, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. You see this? There's a theme that's developing. David reigned over all of Israel, verse 14, doing what was just and right for all of his people. And the thought here is that God empowered David to be a great leader. What did he do with that power? He did, he did four things, and we'll, we'll go through this quickly and, and wrap it up. The first thing is he used the power God gave him to advance the kingdom, not his own kingdom, God's kingdom. Saul abused the power that God gave him to preserve his own kingdom, right? And we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, using God's gifts and resources to build our own kingdom rather than his. And the difference really is the difference between godliness and ungodliness is God at the center and the driving purpose in what we do or is something else there, okay? And if something else is there, then we're using God's resources to build our own kingdom rather than his. A second thing is that uh, he used the power, David used the power God gave him to defeat the enemies of God. God's given us power to defeat enemies. You know, 
the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Okay, God has given us ability to to win in battle. And I think in that particular context, the way I understand that is it's like a wrecking ball that brings in the kingdom. Okay, He's able to do that. Those things that stand up against the preaching of the gospel, uh, the Spirit is able to work through that and to destroy uh, strongholds and to subdue enemies. And Christ has done the subduing of our enemies. You know that? It tells us, it tells us that in uh, Colossians chapter 2 that he disarmed the powers. He stripped them of their weapons. Okay, And he made a public spectacle of them. It's talking about the Roman triumph where the the defeated enemies would be stripped of their weapons. There was a certain part in the parade where all the weapons would be being, being carried on some kind of a chariot. And it would show, look, we've taken these weapons from the enemy. And here's the enemy. And they're being headed towards their doom at the end of the parade. They would go through the, the arches of Rome, and they would march to that one spot, and then they would execute the prisoners. That's what the Romans did. And so when Paul writes that in Colossians, he's talking about what Christ has done on the cross. He said he triumphed over them in the cross. In the cross, the enemy has been defeated. Okay, We have power to overcome in our lives because of the cross. Okay, And then uh, David, coming back to David now, he used the power God gave him to judge the nation. We read this in verse 14. David uh, now is the David not just of, of warfare, but he's the David who is sitting upon the throne, and one of the things that we shouldn't overlook is that kings often served as judges for the nation. Did you know that? That's why the two ladies brought the baby to Solomon. It's because he's a judge. So David did this. We don't see this so much in uh, description in the narrative, but it tells us he reigned over all of Israel, doing what was right and just for all of his people. Okay, so in some way, he's bringing about a righteous kingdom by being on the throne. Okay, I think there's some beauty in that, and that's something that we could explore uh, more another time. But he gave him power to judge the nation, and he did it well. Uh, a way that this could be applied is that if, if you're a parent or in a place of authority, is ask God to give you wisdom about how to make decisions in, in your area of influence so that it can be the kingdom of God coming down. I'm not saying that you're going to have a problem-free existence. I'm saying that part of our stewardship as Christians in this world is to do the best that we can that what's true in heaven would be true on earth. So that justice would prevail and righteousness and peace and joy and those things would prevail. And so God gave him power to help establish the nation and the nation was prosperous under King David, because he did it to the glory of God. And then fourth and finally here, he used the resources God gave him uh, to advance the next generation. And I don't have a verse for this, but there's several verses, you know them, related to the fact that David um, began to store up resources so that Solomon could build a temple. He's not going to be able to do it. It's going to be after he's gone. He wanted to do it. I want to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. My house is built out of cedar. You've got this raggedy tent. Lord, surely I can do something worthy of who you are. And David and God told him no. Um, and 
Second uh, Samuel, we're not told why, if I remember right, but in in the um, Chronicles version, it says because he was a man of war, God wouldn't let him do this. So he couldn't do this, but he's going to build a house out of David. So what did David do? All right, well, if I can't build this, I'm going to set it up so the next generation can exceed me. I'm going to set up all these resources so that Solomon can take on this project and have a head start. And so he invested in the people of God. He invested in the future. He invested in the work of God and the establishment of his work there. I think that, uh, that those resources are the blessing of God's power in his life. And so uh, that's the question is, are, what are we using the empowerment that God has given us for? He's not just empowered us for just anything. He's empowered us for his work. Are we using it in ways that will benefit his work? And your, your area of influence and your area of leadership, are you using God's resources for his glory to establish his kingdom? Or are we using that for something else? What has he empowered us for? Because we're not guaranteed power if we're not going to use it for his purpose. Um, we, you know, at times growing up, I just, I wanted to go to church and I wanted to get the Holy Spirit goosebumps. Anybody else? I wanted that. I wanted the presence of God to come down. I still do. But there was a, a sense in which I think sometimes we got off track with things and we thought it's all about having a feel-good service rather than, God, would you come empower me to be your person? See, one doesn't exclude the other. In fact, I think when our hearts are right in terms of wanting what uh, that power is for, that's when we're going to experience the blessing of God in the way that we're going to really benefit from it and benefit others too. He was empowered. So these are the qualities of David's leadership. I'll just mention them one more time and then we'll pray. His leadership was godly. Do you have leadership that's godly? Leadership that's kind, leadership that's humble, and leadership that's empowered by God. This uh, Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and uh, we want to remember that God has sent His Spirit to empower us to do His work. And so let's pray that He will He will empower us in ways we've never known. Okay. All right, stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, it's... a uh, a good word, Lord, to to follow in the uh, principles of leadership that David exemplified. And I pray, Lord, that you apply that to our heart in a way that would reflect um, your goodness and glory. Help us to be godly. Help us to be humble. Help us, we pray, to be empowered. And, Lord, we pray you help us to be kind, that these things would be true of us as we exert whatever influence you've given us for your glory and entrust you with the rest, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. One minute to spare. I'm going to preach a minute longer on Sunday, all right? Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.